Welcome to How Hard Can It Be? Up close and personal with the real people behind the hits and misses in Boston's venture capital big time. My name is Mike Triano and I'm the Chief Marketing Officer of Actifio and a limited partner in Boston's own G20 Ventures. You can follow me on Twitter at MikeTrap and check out my Medium blog at MikeTrap.com. Each week we'll be getting to know one of the luminaries in our local startup community and drill into a specific area of their expertise for the benefit of other entrepreneurs and investors. My guest this week is EasyCater co-founder and CEO, Stefania Millet. Uh, Stefania has spent over 25 years building and growing technology-enabled companies that solve real business problems. She co-founded and successfully sold Insight Marketing Technology to what is now Kana on the NASDAQ, and prior to that led National Logistics Management, a broker for $225 million in transportation services to profitability for the first time in four years. As the COO of Intranet, now TSAI on the NASDAQ, Stefania revamped the firm uh, and vaulted it to number one in its market, a position it's maintained for over 15 years. What I find remarkable about Stefania is not only the depth of her competence, but the breadth of her interests. A self-proclaimed systems thinker and engineer, she emerged from a difficult and non-traditional childhood determined to make sense of the world proceeding through a hugely successful and entrepreneurial career to do exactly that through a series of executive management roles across a dizzying array of industries and company types. Far from the overly intellectual engineer stereotype, though, she's managed to remain a warm and insightful person who clearly cares deeply for the people she's working with to build EasyCater, a neat little company which itself has a story worth telling. We'll spend our second segment doing just that, walking step-by-step through the unexpected yet highly typical twists and turns that characterized EasyCater's beginning through the disciplined approach to management that's created one of Boston's most successful and thriving marketplace businesses. All right, before we get started here, please take a minute to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Overcast, Podcasts, or the uh, podcast provider of your choice. Uh, Please also consider giving us a quick five-star review on iTunes. It really helps uh, spread the word. How Hard Can It Be is sponsored by G20 Ventures, early traction capital for East Coast enterprise tech startups, backed by the power and expertise of 20 of the Northeast's most accomplished entrepreneurs, G20 Ventures, people first. How Hard Can It Be is also sponsored by Actifio, the world's leading enterprise data as a service platform. Deliver your data just like your applications and infrastructure as a service, available instantly, anywhere. For hybrid cloud, faster DevOps, and better business resiliency, Actifio is radically simple. Here now is my conversation with Stefania Mallet. All right, so Stefania, welcome. Welcome to uh, Actifio World Headquarters. Appreciate you coming in today. Thank you. It's great to be here. It's nice. I live pretty close to Actifio. Yeah, it's not too bad. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm not too far from here. Um, actually, Ash lives in Weston, our CEO, uh, and I live in Sudbury a little bit further down the road. Oh, nice. But it's a very civilized commute up 117 there, a leafy enclave. It's actually, it's better you invited me in on a Friday, so there was almost no traffic. You know, we aim to please here at uh, How Hard Can It Be. I greatly appreciate that. Um, so um, you're a particularly fascinating person to me, given the breadth of your experience, and you've done a lot of really interesting things. Um, let's start at the beginning. Where did you grow up? It's funny to think of myself as particularly fascinating. I think I'm just another person. <laughs> That's quite neat. Well, I grew up extremely far from here in Newton, Massachusetts. Newton. Yes. Very nice. So, uh, my parents, I'm first generation. My parents came here right before I was born. From where? My mom is from Switzerland, from the German part of Switzerland. My father's from Milan. Wow. They met during World War II. That was the war that I learned about growing up until the Vietnam War smacked me in the face. Right. Anything unusual about growing up in Newton, or was it a typical Newton, you know, childhood? Uh, no, I don't think it was typical Newton childhood. We, 
my parents arrived here and they never melted. Uh, they kept very high walls up. We were very isolated kids. We were brought up in a, actually a pretty shitty situation, I would say. I mean, I wasn't hungry. I wasn't beaten. Sure. But it was pretty shitty. Yeah. It's actually good. It turns out having a crummy childhood, then escaping from that, your whole life is an arc upward. Yeah. Like, this is fantastic. Right. Everything keeps getting better. If you peak early, then uh, if you peak you're, early, you're, set, you're setting yourself up for disappointment. You really are. <laughs> and I know kind of child prodigy <clears throat> people who really... Their whole life went downhill after yeah. that because they didn't always learn the skills that you need to cope sure. in the real world because they were prodigies early. I wasn't a prodigy. I was just, I was an isolated, lonely kid. And it and I was brought up, honest to God, believing that I didn't deserve to live. Right. That was the thesis that my parents gave us. Wow. At the same time, they were pushing us forward. The basic premise was we don't deserve to live. And so I've been spending my whole life proving like, hey, wait a second, I do deserve yeah, to live. Yeah, yeah. And so it's cool. And that came from a place of, of you know, you know, encouraging intensity in the things that you did in your life? Uh, like, was, that, was, there, was there something benevolent behind that, or was it just an orientation they had coming out of the war? Uh, there was nothing benevolent behind that. Yeah, yeah. But well, it's okay. I developed fantastic skills at, learn, at listening, at sort of nuanced understanding of the situation, because otherwise you did not survive. Sure. And I've used that to read people and situations all my life. Tough, tough situation. When was your first kind of departure from that? When, after the, where was the launch point from that into college? Yeah, where'd you college. go to school? And my same parents that that were so, uh, in some ways, limiting were also the ones who drove me to go to MIT. Right. Which was a fantastic opportunity for me. I I blossomed literally the day I left home. I only went to Cambridge. Yeah. But it was another world. Totally. And MIT is still to this day, I think, though I don't have as much connection with it today, but I doubt that it would change this. It is. It was then a place where you, where there's a can-do attitude, there's a, you, you learn to solve problems. You learn to solve problems. I mean, many engineering schools teach you that, but I've hired a lot of people in my day, and I think the ones who come out of MIT are the ones who solve problems the best. Yeah. You And you learn to try things. MIT's attitude, even then, was, I don't know, just, well, they could try that. Why don't we just try that? Even down to the level of when I was trying to pay off my school loans and I was struggling with something, and I called and I said, uh, you know, I'm in this trouble, I've got this issue, and they said, well, let's figure something out. They didn't say the rules are this. Yeah. It was such a life-giving philosophy. And I didn't know how to apply it well at the beginning. Uh, every company I've worked for, every team I've built, every department I've run, and then finally when I started running my own companies or launching my own companies, I've done it, I think, each time better. And I think Easy Cater, the latest one, is the one I've done the best. Maybe I'll do another one even better after this. Mm. But right now I'm doing it the best I know how, and we have the maximum amount of, well, just try it. Yeah. Track it. See if it's working. If it didn't work, that's fine. Move on. If it did work, awesome. Build on it. You know, there's so there's a lot of different dimensions. I mean, the mystique of MIT is um, sort of palpable here, and it's very different from you know, I went to school across the river, <laughs> trade school across the river. <laughs> is that resiliency? Is that being data driven in the assessment of problems? Is that a tolerance of failure? Is go one level deeper. Like, what is the magic there? Is it is it about just practical problem solving and an orientation to you know an engineering mindset? I mean, what what is underneath that? I had a professor who said, 
it was in information systems. And he was talking about how you understand communications in contexts in which you don't speak the language. He was talking particularly about animal communications. Right. And he said, you know, that's a situation where you have to be a scientist, not an engineer. Engineers will build something. Scientists have to observe something that exists and figure it out. Right. That difference was extremely striking to me. And I've held that understanding of the two different disciplines in my head ever since. So I think if you have an engineering mindset, you have the feeling that you can construct anything. You also have the feeling you can deconstruct everything, anything and modify it. And so that gives you courage. You think, well, I can fix this. I can improve this. I can try this and, and then tinker with it. I can tinker. I guess it's a tinkerer mindset, a sense of I can make this be what I need it to be. Huh. As an entrepreneur, do you fancy yourself an engineer or a scientist? I'm an engineer. Yeah. I'm an engineer. I have the engineer's sense of, well, surely we could figure this out. Surely we can make this better. Surely we can fix this. Surely we can build something better. Surely we can build something better. Hmm. You know, I'm, I, I think of that as an engineer's mindset, a sense of if I, you give me 17 things and I can build a robot out of them. Yeah. You know, wow. there's a course at MIT that's like that. That was, uh, they give you a box. I mean, many schools I think today have that. They give you a box of pretty random objects yeah. and they give every team that same box and they see which of them can use those objects to create something first. Right. And it's kind of a fun mindset. Right. And I think it just resonated with me. All right, so you're armed with your computer science degree from yeah. MIT. What did you do after school? Well, I was a girl, so I showered every day. And a lot of the programmers with whom I worked, especially in those days, didn't. <laughs> I dressed better than they did just because I didn't know how to do otherwise. Sure. I had been brought up that way. Yeah. And I was very curious about how people use this technology. What do they do with this, these computer things? And all the programmers with whom I worked, I was a programmer, and all the programmers said, well, thank God you care about that, because we'd rather work on the thing itself. We yeah. don't care that much about how they use it. How about you go talk to them, them, the customers? And it took three or four years and I, until I completed the transition, as my friends at the time called it, I turned into a suit. In those days, we wore suits. And so I, I was the business analyst. I was the, the person who translated the technology for the customers. I was the person right. who brought the customers back to the technologists and, and spoke the two languages. I loved it. And my whole theme for my whole life has been using technology to further business processes. Honestly, I don't understand consumers. I've had a B2B focus long before it was called B2B. Right. I understand business customers, and I I understand how to use technology to enable business processes. And I've never forgotten the systems mindset. I, I can still sort of talk computers with people. You don't want me programming. I'm way, way, way less efficient than any good programmer. Right, right. But I figured out early on, I'm good at the business use of technology. And it's hard to be a really, really world-class engineer. A lot of engineers have a streak of frustration in them because most of us can't tell the difference between good engineering and great engineering. And even there are many great engineers who are frustrated because people don't see the value of what they're bringing. Many of us don't. Many human beings do not recognize the value of good engineering. 
or do not recognize the the difference between good and great engineering. And so many great engineers are frustrated because they are not legitimately respected to the extent that they should be. And that's discouraging for them. And I saw that early on, and I thought, you know, I don't know if I'll ever be a great engineer, and and I, even if I were, I wouldn't be as appreciated. I think I'll be a business person because that's actually something that give, was giving me more strokes. Right. You know, it's not that different from marketing, I think. Um, yeah, um, true. Great uh, marketing. Most of us can't tell the difference between good and great marketing. Yeah, we all yeah. think we can write ad copy. <laughs> yes. That's the difference. Not all of us think we can write code. <laughs> that's right. Um, there you go. Yeah, no, but it's it's. Um, I totally relate to that idea. Yeah. Um, that, um, you know, but but the, the, the reality is that, that the value is created in that outside-in understanding of a customer problem and the ability to translate that into business value, right? mm-hmm. as you say, and applying technology to the redesign of business processes, you know. And I think this is sort of underappreciated. I see this time and time again. There was a, there was a paper a long time ago. I, I got it at business school. I think it maybe was Don Dubinsky, but it, it talked about how the productivity gains going from the typewriter to the word processor didn't really occur until we started to network these machines. Um, that it wasn't until you get you get sufficient adoption of an enabling technology yeah. to modify the associated business process that you actually realize the productivity gain. And that idea like always stuck with me as something like really underappreciated. That if you're digitizing the whatever, you know, in isolation, it's not going to really change much. It's only when you get the second order effect that uh, you know that that business value is created. You know, I think that's right. I think that explains also why the pace of impact of the web has continued to increase. Right. At the beginning, we used it for isolated things. Right. But today, we use it to drive interconnected processes and that we didn't understand 20 years ago when the web was in its early stages. Right. And the pace of impact is much faster. I have a huge amount of respect for marketing. As you should. <laughs> um, I worked at digital equipment in the early days of digital when Ken Olson said he thought that marketing was just the worst thing on the planet. He never understood marketing. Having said that, he took his company to $14 billion, which is, you know, not too many people go from one garage, from the garage to $14 billion themselves. But he hated marketing. Yeah. He disrespected it. He thought it was snake oil. He, was, he hated it. And I, w- I yeah. have to say that even growing up as an engineer, I always appreciated marketing. I appreciate that. Yeah. My dad was a sales guy at DEC. Really? And, um, That's cool. Yeah. And um, my father had great... Uh, has great disdain for marketing as well as a sales guy, <laughs> as all good sales guys do. And you became a marketer. I did. Um, I did. <laughs> That's but, when he but, disowned No, you. but I will say that that uh, one of the things that he pressed me to do uh, after, with my shiny degree from Cornell and, you know, basically marketing, was to, um, you know, he said, before you go, you know, be a marketing guy, why don't you do what marketing guys never do, which is learn how to sell. So take some sales training, whatever. And so I took a job selling kitchen knives door to door. And I have to say, I learned a lot about what it takes to, to change people's behavior. And, and that has shaped my entire career as a marketing person, that healthy respect for, at the end of the day, you know, 
one of the things he used to, he, you know, would say to me at the time, um, I don't want, I want to make, he, my father's still alive. Just so to be, right, be careful though. Um, <laughs> but, um, you know, he would say nothing happens in business till somebody buys something from somebody. That's true. And that is, That's that true. is, uh, you know, grounds you in reality. So my CMO also came out of sales and that I see the difference between him and the marketing guys who didn't do that, marketing people, men and women who didn't do that. Yeah. It's really impressive what an education that is. I did a lot of selling. Yeah. And as an engineer, that's really a good education. Where was the first point in your career that you began to think entrepreneurially about how to you know, build a business that you would own a, a piece of? Where, where was that shift for you? Yeah. There are a couple of steps or a couple of moments that I can see looking backward. I was in my late 20s. It was a Saturday. I, was, I had gone to see my boyfriend at the time, who was working for an early, a sort of a startup-y kind of company. I'd go, we, we did what two uh, hardworking, high-tech industry people would do on a Saturday when you're dating. We went to work. We went, <laughs> we went to his office. He was programming, and I needed... And I needed a computer to do stuff as well, uh, though he was working on his work, and I was doing related work to my job, but I wasn't in my office, and the web didn't exist, so you couldn't, like, hook right. into your own computers. Sure. But still, I needed a place to sit. And he said, go sit in that co- office, which was his boss's office, the CEO of the company. And I sat in, it was literally the corner office. And I sat there with my feet up on this guy's desk, working on, I think, a pad of paper. And I thought... That's pretty interesting. Like here, I can just feel, I didn't snoop, but he had stuff on his desk. I could just feel that he had elements of marketing and selling and the technology and letters from customers and all these different components of the company on his desk. And I could feel the interconnectedness of all these pieces sitting in that office. And I thought, someday I'd like to do this. Hmm. And it was a funny feeling for me because... It had come out of nowhere, as far as I knew. I mean, it was a surprising thought. It stuck with me for a bunch of reasons that had to do with the way it was brought up. I did not dream that I could actually do that. But it lodged as this would be nice. Then there was another dimension of the first jobs that I took, which was because I had brought it, been brought up in such an isolated scenario, I was actually naive about the power that managers have over you. And so I held every job with the sense of, what are you going to do, fire me? You fire me, I'll get another job. And so I did every job as though, you know, dance as though no one was watching. I did every job as though no one was watching. Right. I did every job with the kind of courage that came from cluelessness <laughs> And therefore, I did them really well. I wasn't constantly looking over my shoulder. And I got more and more interesting positions offered to me, unbeknownst to me, because I was dancing like nobody was watching. That's what I think, looking backward, was going on. And there came a point where all the pieces had come together, and I realized, I think there's three reasons that people start companies. A lot of us start companies because we have to prove something to our dad. A somewhat smaller segment of the universe starts companies because we want to prove something to ourselves. And another, perhaps the smallest, but still a decent-sized chunk of us start companies because we just don't want to work for other people. We naively think 
that if you are running your own company, you're not working for anybody. In fact, you're working for your employees, you're working for your customers, you're <laughs> working for your investors, you're working for everybody. But you, you hang on to this illusion that you are in charge. Yeah. And there came a point where I said, you know what, I'm done. I'm sick of working for other people. I had put, you know, the, there were, I had done college payments for kids. I had married off kids. I, ha, I was the stepkids, but I, there was behind me. I was, I was fairly free. And I had an opportunity to start a company, and I said, you know, I think I'm going to go for it. And I did. What was that company? The company called Insight Marketing Technology. It was in the early days of the web. We created uh, virtual sales advisors for the web. We helped big companies who were launching their first websites help customers make product decisions. I remember giving advice to uh, Circuit City. Doesn't exist anymore. Circuit City and Best Buy used to be two big competitors. Sure. Big Amazon showrooms. Big Amazon showrooms, uh, yeah. yeah. And I remember giving advice to the CEO of Circuit City saying, listen, CompUSA also, they were a client of ours. I told them the same thing. Listen, if you're getting as much business through your website as you get through one of your brick and mortar stores, you're doing well. <laughs> so we created that virtual sales advisor. It was very cool. It was very cool. It was cutting edge. It was pretty new for the, pretty novel for the time. It worked well. We tripled conversion rates for, for the big chains that were using us, uh, the retail chains. We got sold to SilkNet Software, which was a big success based out of Manchester, New Hampshire. Then SilkNet, with us rolled up into it, got sold to Kana. Kana Systems or Kana Software was called at the time. Now I think it's just Kana. It's yeah. still alive. Yeah. That was fun. That had to feel good. It felt great. How did it change you, that success? Two things that I would highlight. One was I had been invited to Harvard Business School to be, uh, you know, exhibit A in the class. <laughs> and A prop? A prop, yeah. <laughs> and I had been a prop in a class while we were building the company because right. we told a good story of how we were building it. And then we sold it, and I was invited to be a prop again in a different class. And I parked my car. It was raining. I parked in that lot on the side of sure. Harvard Business School, and I walked across past that little kiosk in the har in the lot that's for the you know you may not park here. Oh well. And <clears throat> I walked in onto the campus, and as I did, and I was collecting my thoughts, walking into knowing I was walking into this class, I thought, wow, I had no idea that. The first time I had walked across that quad to be exhibit A, I had been nervous. I didn't know I was at that time that I was nervous. I had not known at the time that I was nervous, but I realized that when I walked across the quad with the story being, and I have sold this company, right. that I felt a heck of a lot less nervous. Sure. Like I had arrived. Yeah. Uh, and another one was I became more bold. I didn't know that I had been more cautious until I saw that, wow, you know, you swing for the fences and once in a while you do actually get one across the fence. And, and knowing that you can do that makes you more bold. And I've seen that in many iterations since then. And if I look backward in my life, I see that every time I had a success, it emboldened me a little. You know, in some sense, the defining aspect of your childhood is, is you were sort of deprived of context. 
I was deprived of context. You were sort of living yeah. in this bubble and whatever, and so... Very isolated, very so, fearful context. But your whole career has been spent finding patterns, connecting dots. Um, I'm a systems thinker. Yeah, and you've rebelled against those, any, any constraint yep. that prevented you from seeing or acting on the larger yep. picture, yep. you know? Yeah. Um, and that is, that is, you know, that's the CEO's job. I mean, um, you were, you were sort of, you know, in a way, like it's an unusual background, but you were kind of born to do that I job. Was born to do that job. I was born to connect the dots. Yeah. Yeah. One of the messages that I've gotten from my life, not just from my childhood, but from my life is the metaphor of chapters. I, I partly, I love to read. I mean, I am a voracious reader and life is chapters. And you do not have to be, the second chapter doesn't have to be defined by the first chapter. It's right. influenced by, but it's not defined by. You can be different from where you came from. You can be different from the failure in your last company. You can have a success right. next time. You can uh, be, you can move into a very different industry. You're not, you are not constrained by the previous chapters. You can build on previous chapters. Right. And you can have quite different chapters. Yeah, you got to separate your your equity from your history. Yeah, I think that that this idea that that we're all going through our lives and our careers and we're accumulating um, a portfolio of skills, experiences, relationships, understanding, yeah, insights, and and to periodically tools. take a step back and say, okay, here's my inventory. How can I apply this in a new context? And yeah. I think I think um, that's a common thread in these conversations is a willingness to step back take stock and make a choice that's yeah. different. Uh, so that's an interesting metaphor. I, I have a, a, different met, a, a different metaphor for the same concept, which is pull the lens back. To me, pulling the lens back is a powerful metaphor for, for what you need to do at, at every moment in your life. We, it, uh, you can use another one. You're in the trees. There's moments you should stop and say, okay, what is this forest? Right. What forest am I in? What am I doing with this forest? Uh, and it's something that we use at Easy Cater. We have had a fair amount of success. We continue to reach new levels. And every time we have achieved some set of goals that we had achieved, we have brought in new money that is going to propel us forward to the next round. Every time we have come to a plateau, I... And, you know, achieve that level, then I say to our management team, okay, now we have to pull the lens back. We have to think in the abstract of what we've done and what we're going to do next and make and get out of the, the weeds, get out of the trees, look at the forest, think, pull the lens back and think with one more degree of sophistication about right. where we are and where we're going next. I think my whole life has been like that. You know, not in a straight line. I've certainly gone up and down. I've certainly gone regressed. And then I've managed to pull myself forward again. Right. Well, that's, that's, that's always true. Right? That's always true. That's always true. It's messy, much messier than it seems on paper. You know, I mentioned this when we first sat down, but one of the things I find really interesting about your background is just the breadth of it in terms of, you know, you've never been bound to a particular vertical or type of company. 
you've been the entrepreneur, you've been the grown-up. You're, you know, part leader, but you obviously are a student of management. And, you know, you've had some remarkable successes in, ju- in terms of just classical kind of the MBA stuff, you know, systems, processes to produce predictable outcomes. I'm curious, broadly speaking, how do you think about what constitutes, you know, a great opportunity? You know, you talk about chapters. At some sense, in, you know, in both our lives, the chapters are, are defined by the decision to pursue a quote-unquote project, you know, which exactly. kind of trivializes it, yeah. right? But you, yeah. you find some big problem in the world or whatever, and you're going to, you know, it's like, you know, you're going to spend N years of your life chasing that. How do you think about what makes something worthy of, of that kind of investment of time and energy? I don't have an MBA. I, I think I've spent my life in the hairball school of education. I just acquire information along the way. And sometimes it's just as messy as a hairball, but it is, it, it's an integrated, you do pull it all together. Yes. <laughs> uh, and I think I've always used it to look at a situation and say, is this going to go somewhere? Where somewhere means up. Is there going to be more? Is it going to be better? Is it going to be more efficient? Can I infect more people with this? Can we sell more of this stuff? Can we build a better system? Can we, where better means runs faster, better, faster, cheaper? Can we, does this feel like it has legs? And I have been less, I'm an operating exec. I care about making things run better, faster, cheaper. And therefore, if you offer me an opportunity to make things run better, faster, cheaper in industry A, in vertical A, or do that in vertical B, I do not pick based on my predilection for A or B. I do that based on which one I think is going to go farther because I'm interested in covering ground. Hmm. I'm interested in getting somewhere. And I actually genuinely believe that anything done well is terrifically interesting. So if you want me to go into the insurance industry, I'd say, well, I don't know. Is there a way to do that really well? That would be really interesting. If you want me to go into aerospace, I'm like, if you say, you know, here's an opportunity to do something in aerospace, I think, is that going to go pretty far? Looks like it could go pretty far. Okay, I'll do aerospace next. Hmm. Because aerospace is inherently interesting if done well. Insurance is inherently interesting if done well. Flipping burgers is inherently interesting if done well. In my current company, we're helping business people find food to feed business meetings. It is as interesting to me as when I was doing uh, discrete manufacturing uh, assembly uh, um, database, which were brand new in in the 70s, database-based bill of materials systems for building communication satellites. I find that quite interesting. It was very interesting at the time. The interesting applications of technology. It is equally interesting to help business people find food for meetings because anything done well is really interesting. Hmm. And because I can see how this, at EasyCater, how we are going to scale this to have impact on an awful lot of people. Let's point that lens at EasyCater. Take us back to the genesis of of the company. And, And what did you see in was it was it the dysfunction of the way that was handled today? The magnitude of, I mean, you know, uh, this isn't something that I, that you know we have a lot of food through this place, as I'm sure you know from. You better um, use Easy Cater. from having <laughs> stolen David Meiselman from us. Um, but um, what did you see in in that in that the, that met your threshold? Yeah, so I'm the. 
I'm the operating executive. I always say, give me a whiteboard the size of any wall you want, write one line on it, and I will fill out the rest of that whiteboard extremely effectively, cost-effectively, uh, and, and with great results, and with happy people who will succeed in, in delivering what we've written on the rest of that whiteboard. But if you give me a blank whiteboard, I don't know what to do. So I follow the people around who are the blank whiteboard people. I follow the idea people around. Uh, there are people who, given a whiteboard, love to write the first line and then say, the rest of it is left up to the interested student to complete, right? Yeah, that's me. That's you. Okay. I'm the one. So you write the white line. You and I would build a company together <laughs> because you would have the idea, the initial idea, and then I would fill out the rest of it. Uh, Fifteen years ago, I stumbled into a guy who is one of those people of, of whom ideas drop like lint. And uh, he and I had, I had brought, been brought in by his investors to help him with uh, his company at the time. And we didn't quite save that one, but I thought the way that he handled the ending of that company was very graceful. And he was clearly one of these idea guys. And he evidently thought I helped, even though I didn't manage to save the company, because when he had his next idea, he pulled me in to be his operating exec, to, to build the company. And that's the pattern we've had ever since. He has the, the product idea, and I have the company idea. He builds the product, I build the company. We have nothing to do with each other outside of work, but we have a fantastic work marriage. Mm. He had an idea to help pharmaceutical company sales reps get in front of doctors in a way that worked for both parties. Doctors need to be educated on the drugs that they are going to write prescriptions for, for you and for me. Right. And so we tried to make that dynamic be really effective for both parties. We got to where a third of all the pharma reps in the country were using our product, uh, essentially a scheduling product. And in the course of setting up meetings that were over lunch or breakfast or a snack, which is really just an efficiency move for the doctors. If you, my stepdaughter is a doctor. She is spectacularly busy. Yeah. And if someone hands her a sandwich, she is so grateful yeah. for that moment that she can actually take a bite, that she will listen to the farmer rep who hands her that sandwich right, right. for those literally 90 seconds, literally 90 seconds that she will listen to that farmer rep. So we had come to understand that if we can uh, help a farmer rep find that, get that lunch slot or that breakfast slot, that what they need to do is bring in food for the entire office. I knew nothing about this. The first farmer rep who said to me, thank you so much for getting the, the, me that coveted lunch slot. Now can you please make the food appear? The first time I heard that on the telephone, I said, don't you take the decision maker out to lunch? And the sales rep virtually reached through the phone and patted me on the head and said, no, honey, that's not how that works. <laughs> they don't have that kind of time. Right. Uh, what I need to do is bring in catering for the entire office. So the business of scheduling pharma reps with doctors was very successful in the sense that we had a third of all the pharma reps using it, but it was unsuccessful in the sense that we ran out of cash and our venture backers backed out before we were able to get to profitability. Rule number one. Rule number one, get to profitability. <laughs> so we didn't get there and we had to shut that thing down, but we understood because we had been asked hundreds and hundreds, actually thousands of times, can you please make the food appear? We understood that there was value 
in making the food appear. So the best market research is the research you don't even have to pay for. It slapped us in the face. And we thought, huh, we've done enough work with the companies that were doing a local version of what EasyCater now does. We'd found online food ordering portals that did this in a couple of cities that we were we found this in the course of trying to help our farmer rep customers that we said, we understand a little of what those companies are doing. It seems like there's margin to be had. It seems like if you could be the national version of that and if you could provide a lot of help and, and um, certainty to the sales reps who are ordering the food, that we could eclipse everybody out there and solve the need that had slapped us in the face thousands of times. Right. So we said, there's legs on that. Why don't we go do that? So that idea, was it, you know, delivering food to businesses? Was it an idea that venture capitalists were salivating to write large checks (laughs) to support in the the early going? Absolutely not. And we, we were fighting yesterday's war. We were pretty tired of the investors. And so we said, you know, another good thing about this idea is we can bootstrap this thing. So we had angel investors who had been with us in the previous round. We had angel and venture investors in the previous company. And some of the angels said, we'll invest in what you're doing next. What the heck is that? And so we went forward with the angels. We thought we would bootstrap this thing. We made two mistakes. One is we thought we were going to do this for the farmer reps, which, who spend a billion dollars a year. And we discovered, because non-farmer reps started using our platform, and we were calling them like, who the hell are you? Yeah. We discovered that we had backed into a $21 billion market. If you're going to make a mistake in sizing your market, make it in that direction. Yeah. And the second mistake we made was we stayed in bootstrap mode for a long time. We used our own monies. We used small monies from angels and then from super angels. I think we should be a year or so ahead of where we are. I think we should have broken out of that mode a year earlier than we did. I don't know. You never get to run the clock twice. In yeah. hindsight, I would say we probably frittered a year away that we shouldn't have. But we're doing okay. There was a point where we had demonstrated that this two-sided marketplace was operating pretty well and that we understood how to make... We'd built the flywheel. We understood how to change the gearing. We knew that if you poured more money in here, it would have this much effect. It would oil... It would change the gearing, the, the, the fineness of the teeth on that gear, and it right. would make this other thing spin faster and that we then were in a position to attract top-tier venture firms, which was very cool. I'm pretty proud of that, honestly. Yeah. So, yeah, they're not salivating about the catering. But I can tell you this. We just raised another round. It's our second... uh, It's it's bringing in our second top-tier firm. We did that in December of 2016. And when we went to tell our marketplace story to half a dozen venture firms that have a practice of investing in marketplaces, we were struck by the fact that it was almost that when we left, as we were leaving the room and they were all excited about our marketplace, they would kind of be like, wait, what does your marketplace do? They didn't care. If we were selling toys, if we were selling airplane parts, they didn't care. It's a marketplace. It has all the dimensions of a marketplace and the fact that it's about food or about business food versus retail food or it didn't matter. What mattered is it's a marketplace. Right. That's a business model that in itself is powerful. You know, for 
entrepreneurs who are solving a problem that is um, not so inherently system driven. Yeah. You know, I'm sure you talk to other entrepreneurs. Is there a counsel that you give them? Is there a sort of rule of thumb or, or a, th- a thought you could share to someone who's, you know, a leader who's trying to take their business to be a little bit more systematic? Well, data driven, it's a buzzword. Everybody talks about it. Yeah. You have to actually be it. And, and you know, it's very hard to be it. We are data driven. We are a bunch of engineers. We are a bunch of systems thinkers. We have a chief marketing officer who, when I hired him, I did a backdoor reference on him, and the backdoor reference said, yeah, we almost hired him, but he was too data-driven for us. <laughs> I thought, score, I want that guy. <laughs> That's our marketing guy, right, with the creative streak that a marketing guy has. Yeah. So across the board, we are truly data-driven, and yet I can tell you, recently we had a hiccup, small hiccup, we're good, everything's fine, but it was a case where we didn't actually listen to our own data. Right. I couldn't believe it. And so we had a big conversation, a real like navel-gazing discussion, like, why, what the heck? Yeah. Why did we not listen to our own data? And I think I know why, and I get it. It was human nature. But data-driven is something that anybody can learn to be, and that helps you make better decisions. You have to do two things. You have to put in place the measurements so you are capturing your data, right. and then you have to put in place the systems to use that data, to actually look at it. And most of us don't take the time to do that, even if we built the data into the system, it built the measurements in. But that kind of clarity is what you need. You don't have to build a flywheel as, t- as intensely geared as ours is, and not every business is suited to something the, of the sort that, that a marketplace business is. But every business can benefit from the discipline of pull the lens back, look at what just happened. Look at what you have been doing for the last X months. Look at what the customers are telling you. Look at what your own employees are telling you. Look at what your gut is telling you. Stop and listen. Everybody can do that. And that helps you get out of the repeated craziness. It helps you move to the next level of craziness. Right. That's the best you can do is <laughs> That's the best you move can do. to the next move level to of the craziness. Next level of craziness. <laughs> exhaustion is a terrible yardstick, but many of us use exhaustion as the yardstick. We think, well, if I worked until I couldn't work anymore, then I'm blameless. I can say, look, what more could I have done? Right. It's, it requires a le- an act of intellectual heroism to stand back and say, this is enough. This is the yardstick I'm going to use. When we get to this much, we can stop for the day. When we have delivered, when we've written this much code, when we've signed up this many more customers, when we have moved this project to this step, that's enough for today. That's enough for this week. That's enough for this month or this quarter. And consciously setting a yardstick and a set of goals, using a yardstick and setting goals that are not exhaustion, is an act of heroism. Most of us don't do it. Hmm. But if you do it, sanity will prevail. Yeah, once in a while you have to go in still for a crazy, crazy weekend or a crazy stretch for a month to reach a certain goal. But having a yardstick that's different from exhaustion, that's a much more deliberate and conscious yardstick of which you give yourself permission to stop, allows you to have more time to think allows you to feel better about what you do and allows you to achieve that elusive work-life balance. Right. We're big on that. Right. You're 
it lets you it lets you change the lens, right? It lets you change Step the lens. Step back and see the forest. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. 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 A lot of this is about living an intentional life. Letting fewer things happen to you and taking charge of more of it. Turn you you think, well, I don't have the energy to take charge of it. Actually you get a lot more energy if you take charge of it. You right. get the energy back. Instead of being in react mode. It's the yeah, you know, get it, out of it react makes the mode. effort sustainable in a way. Yeah. Right. The race yeah. is long, as they say. Yeah, exactly. Um, we have our, our anti-mission statement in our company. And this is an anti-mission statement that I got in the first company that I started. One of the people who worked for me uh, uh, coined this, and I have used it ever since. We will do whatever the company is supposed to do. And while we're doing it, we will not turn this into a hellhole that delivers <laughs> schlock. <laughs> <laughs> and as I've gone forward, I've gotten better and better at measuring what's a hellhole, which has to do with your employees, yeah. the company itself. Is that a hellhole? And are you delivering schluck? I'm better and better at measuring, you know, are my customers, are my business partners happy with yeah, what I'm yeah. delivering? The hellhole, the blunt instrument kind of measurement that we use is if your health, your sanity, or your relationships are hurt by the work, then we as a company have failed. And that means two things. If the amount of work is destroying your health, your sanity, or your relationships, or even if we let you go home at a reasonable hour, if we've created a toxic environment so that when you're in the office, you're cringing all the time because there's that asshole who's next to you, the jerk in the workplace, because there's such unfairness or unreasonableness in the way that you get treated, because we constrain you so tightly that you're constantly feeling frustrated. Either that or the amount of work, those two are the big sources of destroying people's health, sanity, or relationships. Yeah. All right, Stefania Millet is a fucking grown-up. Um, such an unusual combination of, you know, engineering sensibility and systems thinking with just a real feel for people and um, a human touch. Um, incredibly thoughtful person and um, really enjoyed our conversation and I'll tell you I'm I'm pretty excited about Easy Cater and where it's headed and I um, I wish them um, and including my friend David Meiselman the absolute best alright How Hard Can It Be is sponsored by G20 Ventures early traction capital for East Coast Enterprise tech startups backed by the power and expertise of 20 of the Northeast's most accomplished entrepreneurs G20 Ventures people first how Hard Can It Be is also sponsored by Actifio, the world's leading enterprise data as a service platform. Deliver your data just like your applications and infrastructure as a service available instantly anywhere. For hybrid cloud, faster DevOps, and better business resiliency, Actifio is radically simple. Hey, thanks for sticking around, and we'll see you next week. 